I'd like for you to turn to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as is, it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another. If you have a King James, doesn't it say welcome? You have a King James? Does it say welcome? Receive. Okay, some translation has welcome. I was almost certain it was that, but I'm, all, I'm wrong. Wherefore, welcome one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles and I will sing to thy name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a personal question, if I may. If you had only one day to live, 24 hours to live, how would you live that day? I don't suppose that any of us really can answer that question until we get there. And then, you know, it might be different than what we think. But it is a question that calls for the highest um, values, priorities. And it calls us to filter the um, essentials from the non-essentials. What do you think you would do if you had 24 hours to live? Now there was a man who knew that he had 24 hours to live. His name was Jesus Christ. How did he live that last day he lived on the earth? I want you to turn to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John because that shows us what he did on the, in the last 24 hours of his life. 
The 17th chapter of John really is the Lord's Prayer. That prayer, our Father who art in heaven, is really the disciples' prayer or the model prayer. But the 17th chapter of John is the Lord's Prayer, and it's this prayer He prayed in the last 24 hours that He lived on the earth. Beginning verse 20, if you'll put your finger there to follow in just a moment. Let me set the setting here. He is either in the Garden of Gethsemane or He is en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And He's surrounded by 11 men who love Him dearly. And He has 24 hours to live. He has determined that He will spend these last 24 hours doing two things. He will spend time with these men He loves and who love Him. And He will spend time with the Father in prayer. And what he prays, or how he prays, will give us, or, or, or is indicative of how he wants to spend his time with, his, with these men, because he prays for them. So in the time that he spends with them and with the Father, he's thinking of them. And so he says in verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, he's not just praying for them, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He's praying for us, you see. And he's praying for those who would, in the first century, who would experience tremendous persecution. And in the third century, who, who would endure uh, tremendous assault against the church. And during the Reformation, he's praying for all believers. But he's praying especially for these 11 men that he loves and who love Him. And here's His prayer. That they may all be one, even as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou hast given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And so the last night of his life, he spends with 11 men he loves and with the Father in prayer, and his prayer focuses on them. And he prays that they and us might be one. Now I know of no other place where Jesus prays for the same thing three times. And here he prays three times for unity. And the reason why it is so important to him that we be one is because he said in, he prays in verse 21, and, and at the heart of his program of world evangelism is unity within the fellowship, within the church. And he says, in essence, in his prayer, that when the world sees that the Christian people are one, they'll say, or the world will say, I just have to be a part of that. Ray Steadman has it this way. He says, The divine strategy with which the Lord intends to bring the world to an awareness of Jesus Christ is to create in the midst of the world a family, a family life, a love-shared life, so that men and women all over the earth, becoming by the new birth members of that family, enter into a family circle that is so unmistakable 
and is so filled with joy and warmth and love that worldlings observing it will envy it. And like homeless orphans with their noses pressed against the window will long to join the warmth and fellowship of that family circle. When the church is like this, there is no more potent evangelical force. What Stedman says is that when the church is in answer to his prayer becomes one, the world will press its nose against the window and say, I want in that place. Now how did the church do with regard to, to unity? Tragically, in less than 50 years, the church was experiencing tremendous division. The church at Corinth was divided into about four ways with party strife and division. The church at Thyatira was split right down the middle because a man was preaching a doctrine of loose morals. The church at Ephesus was cold and sterile because it had a lukewarm orthodoxy. And the church at Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. And the story goes on and on and on. And so Paul says, for God's sake, three things from last week. For God's sake, be considerate. Care for one another. For God's sake, be considerate of one another. Care for one another. Love one another. And for God's sake, be convinced that how you treat one another and how you care for them is a conviction that God has given you. And for God's sake and the, world, and the work's sake, be consistent so that if you express love and sympathy, if you have a conviction one day, let it be the same the next. And so he says, among God's people, there is, first of all, an obligation. Now, what is the obligation? Let Back to Romans chapter 15. Look at this. This is the obligation. Now, we who are strong, mature Christians, Christians that have been a part of the fellowship of God for years, now we who are strong ought to. It's interesting that in the evolution of words, that word has evolved to the word ought, but in the past it, was a, it meant it was a word, it was the word owed, and it suggests a debt. And what he's saying is that when you become a Christian and you join yourself to a fellowship called the church, you have assumed a tremendous obligation. And that obligation is that you are in debt to do one thing, and that indebtedness is to bear the burdens, the weaknesses of others. The word bear means to support or to carry along, so that here is the obligation of every Christian. We are in debt, we owe this to other Christians, that we bear their burden, that we support their burden. And not just to please ourselves. Now we don't, you know, we don't care about, you know, pleasing. Our, you know, our interest is looking after number one. The obligation is that you support, you bear one another's burdens, weaknesses. And there is an illustration. He said, even Christ, look at that. 
Even Christ did not please Himself. If there ever was a person who had the right to do his own thing, to say, I'm going to wing it, I'm going to do it my way, it was Jesus. What did He have? He had a face-to-face relationship with the Father. He had the worship of holy angels. He had the bliss of eternal heaven. And He said, I will go I want you to put your finger there in this place and turn to Philippians chapter 1. And there it is, the description of it. Philippians chapter 2, rather. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He came down to our level, it says, as they sang a minute ago. He humbled Himself, becoming by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the cross kind of death. The illustration is that we become like Him, that we have the same attitude, that we, in humility, bear one another's weaknesses. And there's a motivation. The motivation, back to Romans 15, is the motivation that's found in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, and he's making reference to the Old Testament, and there's a fourfold purpose of, the Old, of, of Old Testament Scripture here indicated. He says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written, number one, for our instruction. In order, secondly, that we might persevere, persevere under difficult times, it was written for our encouragement. And fourthly, it was written to give us hope. And so you turn to the Old Testament and you read those magnificent stories of Abraham and Moses who endured seeing him who is invisible and Elijah fed by ravens and drank from a pond, a stream that had been dried by the drought. And and Paul says that those Old Testament stories give us hope. I heard a story one time of Winston Churchill. He, he met with his cabinet during the days of the, of the um, most severe time of, of the war. And he outlined the conditions in dark colors. France had already surrendered and um, England stood alone. Britain stood alone. Some of the, his own cabinet members were ready to, to surrender. And he told this described in graphic details the terrible conditions. And then he said, as only Winston Churchill could say, gentlemen, I find that rather inspiring. It's kind of like the Marine sergeant who told his men one night, he said, gentlemen, we're surrounded on all sides. They're They're behind us and they're in front of us and they're on both sides. Then he punched his fist into the air and said, we got them right where they want them. They'll never get away. 
Now what Paul is driving at is this. And we shared this a minute ago with this young man who was sitting on, on the front row here with me and talking a minute ago. That when the church is one, it's invincible. And when the church is together, bound together in love, and is striving for the same goal, and it's bound by the same Lord, and there is love and, and fellowship, and there is mutual support, there is nothing that can defeat. I have noticed that where there is pessimism, there is disunity. I, um, I can't remember too many times where I sensed a lack of unity in this church in the 10 years I've been here. I have sensed unity. But about three years ago, I, I can remember back in a, in a summertime, and we were having a, some real financial struggles. And everybody was wondering if we were going to pay our bills and all that kind of thing. And you know what? It was, what I observed during that time was not that, that just that people were concerned about the budget. But I observed during that time that people began, there was a, a sense of disunity. Pessimism always breeds disunity. And optimism breeds unity. And where you get the, a, a body of people together and you have the encouragement of Scripture and you have a oneness where we all know we're in this thing together, it gives an, a, a confidence and a hope that will never be defeated. And the song goes like this, we're one in the Spirit, we're one in the Lord. We're one in the Spirit and we're one in the Lord and we pray that all unity will one day be restored and they'll know we're Christians by our love, by our love, yes. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And that church becomes an army that knows no defeat. If I know tonight that, that I can count on you and that you're going to bear up my weaknesses and not tear down, tear me down. If I know that you're going to support me even in my weaknesses and lift them for me to God, I'm afraid of nothing. We're invincible and undefeated. Undefeatable. Then he says in verse 5, Be of the same mind. Now, he doesn't say be of the same temperament. He says be like-minded. And, and, the, and the whole point is that we focus on Jesus Christ. And he says there in verse 6, just look at that again. And with one accord you may with one voice glorify God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that there is one purpose that we all have, and it's not to glorify self or glorify man, it's to glorify God. I uh, went home this afternoon to eat my lunch, and I, uh, um, I was thinking about marvelous anthems that the choir sang this morning, beautiful thing. Now, when you went out of here today, and I, it always happens, I preach revivals, and they, you know, 
they'll always brag on the choir, never brag on the preaching. I mean, you, you went out here this morning, nobody, nobody said, man, did you hear that alto? You know, did you hear that tenor? What you did when you went out of here this morning was to say, wow, wasn't that music great? Because there was one harmony and there was one voice, one tune, one melody coming from the choir. It wasn't 20 different, it was just one sound, one song, one melody, one piece of music. Now what the world is looking for is a church where everybody is doing the same thing and that same thing is that we're glorifying God together. And when we glorify God together, the world says, I can't stay away from that. Now there's a transition. Look at this transition in verse 7. Here's the transition. That's why the word wherefore is there. Wherefore, accept one another. If you don't have acceptance, um, you're part of the problem. If you can't accept old Bob as he is or whoever, you're part of the problem. If somebody's got to change, dress different, talk different, act different, do differently for you to accept. You're part of the problem in this church. Um, somebody said, you know, I was, you know, when this gentleman came this morning, right out of a box car, he was filthy, smelled, been drinking. Somebody said, I, I was impressed by the fact that you put his, your arm around him and prayed with him. Well, wh what why not? Um, if we don't accept one another, and as that translation has it, welcome one another. Now, there's a difference between putting out a sign and saying everybody welcome and really meaning that. I wonder if when people wander in off the street, I wonder if they feel that. You see what I'm saying? You belong here, regardless of how you're dressed, how you smell, how long you, your hair, how short. You, we watch you. We, we accept you. You're part of us. If you can't say that, you're part of the problem. I was listening to Paul Harvey one day, and he said that he, he liked signs. He said he, somebody told him about this sign that was on the walls of some convent. It said, keep out, absolutely no trespassing, whatever. Violators will be prosecuted to the letter of the law. And underneath it said, the Catholic order of the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> and he said, it doesn't matter, you know, that, that you hold out a sign that says we love you, Welcome, come on down. If when they come in, we don't accept them as they are. What keeps you from accepting someone? And so he says, 
Here's the transition. Here's how you do it. You accept others just as Christ has accepted you. With all of your weaknesses and with all of your mistakes and with all of your faults and with all of your sins, He didn't say, go straighten yourself up and then come back. It's come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now look at verse 8 and we'll be through. Consider God's Son. It says that He became a servant to the Jews. Now the Jews didn't want a servant. They wanted a king. He became a servant to the Jews. And He became the door to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know whether you understand what that means or not, but I want you to hear me now. What Jesus became servant to the Jew and door to God for the Gentile was that He became the means by which the Gentile felt access and found access to God Himself. You know, I have a feeling that there are some people in this world who would love to know God and who would long to know a relationship with the Father and they're just waiting for somebody to love them and accept them and become a door to the Father. You ever thought about that? You ever thought how many people there are in this world that that have never made it to the Father simply because they've never had somebody to love them and accept them? And He became the door for the Gentiles to the Father. Now verse 13. Because of God's power, we have three things. Because of God's power, we are filled with joy and peace. I love a church where people love one another because that's a church that's filled with joy and peace. And we abound in hope. When Jesus reigns in our being, there are no limits to our hope. I was sharing with the guys in the noon luncheon, Glasner's little book, a guy came up to me and asked me what the second thing was. In Glasner's little book called Reality Therapy, he says there are two things you can't live without. One of those things is love. Can't live without it. And he tells about Frederick the King, the King, Frederick the Great in the 14th century, who wondered what children, what language children would use if nobody ever talked to them. You ever thought about that? If nobody ever talks to a baby, what what language would he use when he tried to talk? Maybe he thought, Frederick thought, well, maybe it's Hebrew for some strange reason. And so he had this experiment. He He had these people in this nursery to to diaper the babies and feed the babies, but never speak to them. 
They never heard a human being speak. They were to diaper them and feed them, but never love, cuddle them and love them and talk to them. He didn't get to the end of his experiment because they all died. Can't live without love. You can't live without giving it. And you can't live if you have no one to love you to receive it. It's the one thing you can't live without, says Glasner. And the second thing you can't live without, the guy asked me, what's the second? When I use this illustration, the second thing Glasner says you can't live without is hope. Now when a church loves one another and they're bearing one another up, you know what that does for me? It gives hope things are going to be okay. And I heard about this pastor that met with his church. Times were rough. And he led the meeting with prayer and he started the prayer, Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, Thou whose, whose grace is sufficient for all things, went through this prayer, finished the prayer and said, Now, ladies and gentlemen, our condition here in our church is hopeless. He said, We'll never get things straightened out. Now, which is true? Is He the Creator, Almighty God, whose grace is sufficient? If that's true, then there is nothing that's hopeless. Not terminal illness, not political strife. There's nothing that's hopeless. And so a man went traveling through the country and he came to a little village up in New England and he stopped to get a, a cold drink and he went in this little store and he noticed all around everything is falling down. Houses needed to be repaired, vacant stores, thing was coming, falling down. And he went in and kind of inquired and the guy in the little store said, well, they've already voted the bonds and they're building a dam and one of these days. All of this territory will be covered in water, be a big gigantic lake. And then he made this statement. He said, when you have no hope for the future, you have no power for the present. Why, why paint your house if next year it's covered in water? Why go on living if you don't have somebody who will accept you as you are and love you? Ask the man that who gave up and took his own life. Why go on living if you don't have somebody who will accept you like Christ? You were accepted of Christ. We're one in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord. Are we really? Let's pray. Father, I pray that Jesus' prayer will be answered and that from the smallest to the largest, from the least to the greatest, we are one in the bond of love. For I pray in the name of Jesus for His sake.